This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. Bucha, Irpin and Kramatorsk. These are some of the cities in Ukraine where Russian troops have been accused of attacking the civilian population and committing war crimes. How are war crimes defined and what's the path of holding perpetrators to account? Joining me to discuss this is Dr. Maria Varaki, lecturer in international law at the War Studies Department of King's College London. Maria, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning and thank you very much for having me. Now, in an ideal world, the act of war itself would be seen as a legal wrong, but that's not actually the case under international law. And instead, there are international rules that govern the conduct of armed conflict and violations of certain rules are then considered war crimes. So what actually constitutes a war crime under these laws? Excellent. Before I I explain briefly what is a war crime, I would like also to say that waging an aggressive war itself is a crime. It's a crime of aggression. Since 1945, recourse to force has been prohibited under the UN Charter. And especially since the the Rome Statute and and later, you know, we have the crime of aggression, which is under the subject matter jurisdiction of the Rome Statute. However, when we talk about war crimes, which is an and other core crime under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, we talk about serious violations of international humanitarian law, which, as you said before, it's the part of international law that regulates the conduct of hostilities and also the means and methods of warfare. To give you a very characteristic example, deliberate killing and targeting of civilians is prohibited under international humanitarian law, and it is considered to be a war crime. Now, uh, together with torture, inhumane treatment, uh, several forms of sexual violence, deportation, and and other acts. Uh, Now, the horrific images we have from Bucha, as you say before, but also from other uh, cities on the territory of Ukraine, they raise very serious questions about possible war crimes. At this stage, as lawyers, we talk about alleged war crimes until they are fully substantiated based on credible um, and independent uh, evidence. So war crime is a serious atrocity, a violation, a serious violation of international humanitarian law and requires to have a nexus, as we say, with a non-conflict. You mentioned crime of aggression. Does that mean that initiating a war could be considered a, a violation of international law Yes. Since since 1945, you know, we have the prohibition of recourse to force with only two exceptions, as we say, and this is for reasons of self-defense or, or and only when the Security Council under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter uh, authorized collective security measures. Now, the crime of aggression, it took us some time. We had the crime against peace already from the Nuremberg trials and the Nazi defenders were prosecuted for the crime against peace. And uh, for, for many decades in the 50s, and 60s, there was discussion about that. Then with the revival of the project, as we say, of international criminal justice, the crime of aggression, you know, was back into the discourse. And now it is a crime, a core crime under the International Criminal Court. Now, with the crime of aggression, we have something different. It is what we call a leadership crime. A perpetrator who can be prosecuted for the crime of aggression has to be a leader, someone who is in command, in control of the military of of a state. 
Okay, and um, what happens here is because of the particularities of the crime of aggression, um, a state which is not a party to the Rome Statute, and this is the case with Russia, cannot, um, like individuals coming from Russia, you know, cannot be investigated for the crime of aggression, just for the crime of aggression. But that does not apply for the other crimes, such as war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide. Okay, that makes it clear in terms of who exactly can be um, held to account. How are war crimes different from another category of violation, namely crimes against humanity? Is it just in the context of war that war crimes occur? Could they occur simultaneously or, you know, in parallel to each other? Yeah, that's very true. Uh, War crimes can take place only as I say, in connection to an armed conflict, we require a nexus to an armed conflict. Crimes against humanity can be committed during peacetime and during wartime at the same time. Uh, so you know, if we go to the International Criminal Court, a crime against humanity is considered a particular act, which is part of a widespread or systematic attack against civilian population with knowledge of the attack. It could be killing of civilians, it could be uh, execution, it could be torture, it could be sexual violence, it could be deportation, persecution, um, different particular acts. Looking at um, the reported atrocities committed by Russian troops against civilians, and you yourself were very careful to say earlier that these are possible war crimes. It's not unequivocal at this point that war crimes have been committed. What kind of evidence is needed in order for these um, war crimes to be substantiated? That's that's a very good question. Uh, the international Speaking about the International Criminal Court, but I will also talk about national authorities, we need credible and effective evidence and investigation. So now uh, what the investigators do, they collect all kind, any kind of evidence. So we are talking about forensic evidence. We are talking about testimonies. So we have different reports coming from UN organizations because we shouldn't forget that in Ukraine, on the territory of Ukraine since 2014, we have a UN human rights monitoring mission. So it's very important that there is an, an independent organization such as the UN that reports, you know, about um, alleged uh, atrocities. Uh, we have the Ukrainians themselves. Uh, a couple of days ago, the president of the European Commission spoke about a joint investigation team uh, where um, UN agencies such as Eurojust or Europol were very, uh, they were about, you know, to contribute to help. At the same time, we have other states, such as US, UK, France, that express their will, their commitment to support financially and also with technical support, the investigation. Um, It's quite interesting what we have in Ukraine. We have satellite images. We don't only have photographic images, we have satellite images. At the same time, you know, uh, the other day I heard that the German intelligence, they managed to intercept communications between Russian troops. So everything, you know, technology, intelligence, forensic evidence, um, images, testimonies from witnesses. But of course, we shouldn't forget that we are talking about an ongoing armed conflict first. So it's very difficult, you know, for to, to collect. And also witnesses who have been, who may be very scared, traumatized and intimidated at the same time especially when it comes to sexual violence atrocities. Speaking of genocide, that is the kind of the call that's being made following the withdrawal of Russian troops from suburbs around Kiev, the discovery of, you know, the the large-scale civilian killings that took place. Um, Ukraine is calling it genocide. Some of world leaders are also calling it genocide. Is there a case against Russia for this? 
Well, we saw also in the proceedings before the International Court of Justice that uh, that Ukraine uh, brought against you know Russia almost a couple of days after the Russians' invasion that uh, Ukraine uh, asked the court to clarify that Russia misinterpreted the meaning of genocide in order to justify its invasion, you know, and also for the court to declare that Russia committed genocide. Well, I think, as I said before, and I will be again very careful, uh, I understand the political invocation. I understand the emotional invocation. The crime of genocide triggers particular emotions and reaction. You know, no one is one. I give you the example. Think of modern Turkey, you know, and what happened with Armenia. Modern Turkey says, we didn't do it. That was not a genocide because there is no state that wants to be considered a genocidal state, okay? Uh, but as I said, it, it requires a genocidal intent. Now, for the time being, as we speak, I don't think that someone, there is evidence of that type of acts, you know, that they could, uh, we can infer from particular acts, you know, genocidal intent. That can change. It depends on the evidence, you know, it depends. If you, if you, uh, it depends on, uh, on policies. If there is a particular policy for exterminating particular groups and that can be substantiated and you can prove the genocidal um, intent, it's a possibility. Uh, but I think the invocation of genocide mainly from political leaders is 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 more a, it's not in a legal term it's not they don't use it in in the legal language they use it you know in a more common language but legally speaking the crime of genocide is very difficult to be proved I mean in the former Yugoslavia we had the crime of genocide only Srebrenica okay and now we have the proceedings before the ICC of Gambia versus Myanmar um so it remains to be seen again based on evidence. If they find evidence, you know, that they can infer genocidal intent, it remains to be seen. Right. Again. Okay. It is a very serious crime and hence has a very high threshold that needs to be cleared in order for it to be legally declared as that, <clears throat> even though emotionally people use the term in their everyday speech. So currently information is being collected. Um, if these were to go to trial, would the war have to end before any proceedings can actually take place? Um, no, um, it doesn't have to work. Uh, to give you to stop, I can give you an example that the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Former Yugoslavia, actually took place before the massacre of Srebrenica. You know, so it had already started. So this relates to a big discussion to what extent a judicial intervention, such as in the National Tribunal, you know, can derail peace process or peace negotiation. That goes back, you know, to the to the discussion of peace and justice. No, we don't. But when it comes to the particular conflict, I think it's very unlikely that the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, he has already opened an investigation. So now they collect evidence, they evaluate, they substantiate, which is a very difficult process, as I told you. Uh, but it requires time because it's it's very difficult and challenging. So I don't think, you know, that he will issue arrest warrants immediately, to put it simply like in the coming days. I don't think that this is something that, that will happen. And I understand why people ask that, because all the time we have leaders, like today the president of the German Federation spoke, he said, you know, Putin and Lavrov have to be, have to be considered accountable at some stage. So I think there is a message that that will happen immediately, but I think we have to be very clear 
uh, that this is not the case. Right. Okay. Um, it's it's still going to be a long drawn out process. That's it's not going to happen. It's a long process, and we shouldn't forget that the ICC does not have its own force, does not have its own police, it doesn't have its own army. Depends of state uh, cooperation. Russia will never cooperate with the ICC under the current circumstances. I, I believe we will have some arrest warrants. I believe so at some stage, uh, but then to what extent they will be implemented, it, it is something to be seen. Mm. I'm speaking to Dr. Maria Varaki, lecturer in international law at King's College London. We'll have more from the conversation after these messages. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Hello, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana, and on the show with me today is Dr. Maria Varaki, lecturer in international law at the War Studies Department of King's College London. Let's talk about the uh, forum of the trial and trial process. So you mentioned um, the International Criminal Court or ICC. Would that be the main avenue for any such trials to take place? It depends, you know, the Ukrainians can do that as well, but... I would say that the most competent tribunal would be the ICC with all the semiotics and the symbolism and the credibility, if any, it carries. At the same time, we see that different states have also initiated their own investigations under what we call universal jurisdiction um, legislation they have. So, for example, France had some citizens, French Ukrainian citizens, who were killed on the ground of Ukraine. So French investigators announced that they would open an investigation for alleged war crimes. So um, Germany is doing the same. Uh, they collect evidence and they try to see to what extent, you know, in the future they may prosecute alleged um, war criminals. Uh, I can give you an example. In Germany, we had that very recently with Syrian torturers who happened to be found on the territory of Germany and the victims managed to bring a case against them, you know, under the universal jurisdiction. So you can have parallel uh, proceedings um, on, on different national fora. Uh, I, I think that, and, and also I had the other day President Zelensky calling for a tribunal uh, of the type of Nuremberg, you know, but we already have the International Criminal Court and the international, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court already opened an investigation on the territory of Ukraine, which goes back to 2014. So he investigates all alleged crimes that may have been committed. So I don't think we need another tribunal for war crimes and crimes against humanity. I mean, the fact that neither Ukraine nor Russia are actually members of the ICC, that, that wouldn't stop uh, trials from being conducted in the ICC? That's what I have to clarify here. Uh, none of them is a state party to the Rome Statute. However, Ukraine has accepted the jurisdiction of the court. So by acceptance of the jurisdiction of the court, Ukraine uh, conferred jurisdiction you know, upon the, the court. So that's why the ICC prosecutor can investigate war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide on the territory of Ukraine, but not the crime of aggression, with the exception of the crime of aggression. So that's not a problem, you know, a problem regarding investigation, basically. But in terms of the trial itself, whether perhaps uh, if, if a Russian accused are, are called to trial, they don't have an obligation to attend as they are not members of the ICC. 
No, 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 no. Uh, the court has jurisdiction based on the nationality of perpetrators or based, you know, uh, on, on the territori territorial jurisdiction. So the problem is not that they don't have an obligation. The problem is that who is going to arrest them? You know, because as I said before, the International Criminal Court does not have its own police and army and power to go and arrest individuals and bring them. Either they are surrendered or they are arrested, you know. Uh, so if there are arrest warrants against Russians or Ukraine, you know, because the prosecutor is investigated unless crimes by all sides involved in the territory of Ukraine, uh, then the key question is, you know, how will these alleged perpetrators be, be brought before the court? And this is also very problematic. Mm. So at the moment, there is a loud and consistent call for Russia to be held accountable. As you mentioned, there's a lot of um, international momentum, especially from Western countries. Uh, but the thing is, I think the same urgency isn't applied to other situations of armed conflict, um, particularly where Western countries are seen as the aggressor or where they're militarily backing parties to the conflict. You know, Yemen comes to mind. The Palestine-Israeli crisis comes to mind. Does the perception of double standards hurt the legitimacy of the international criminal justice system and the accountability process? Yes, of course. You know, uh, the perceived legitimacy of any project is very important. We talk about the normative and sociological legitimacy. And we have this question of double standards from the very beginning of this uh, crisis in Ukraine. So it, it already started with the waging of an aggressive war. So when I was teaching to students initially, they were asking me, what, what, about, what about Iraq in 2003? And I said, yes, but we were lawyers, the majority of lawyers, we condemned the Iraqi invasion and we say it was illegal under the UN Charter. Full stop. I mean, it was a violation of, of, of international law. I think it's a big lesson, first of all, for several states, maybe from the West, to realize that every time we have a violation of a rule of international law, that triggers further erosion of this rule. And then it can be used also from, like, at the beginning, President Putin was saying, oh, don't point the finger at me because we have done the same. Who are you to condemn us when we have done the same? So I can say here, um, without trying to justify anything, you know, that maybe from now on some powerful states, you know, will be more careful when they define the national law. Uh, the question of double standards and why now they show more um, uh, concerned about Ukraine is one one argument could be like that the gravity of of crime of 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 everything like the aggressive war uh, that you have a superpower such as uh, Russia nuclear power invokes the language of nuclear weapons after so, all these years. And also the statement is, I don't like another state, another independent state. I invade this state. I don't even recognize these people that they exist as a different nation. So the gravity of all these violations is incomprehensible. Um, that's one argument, you know. The, uh, I mean, above standards. Yes, of course, there are. Who can deny that? I mean, there is a difference. But, but I'm trying, you know, to, to, to understand all sides, you know. And, I, and I, I really believe that the particular invasion by Russia really 
triggers all the fundamentals we have of international legal order since 1945 in the most flagrant way. And this is very, very scary. But also I think that it's important on behalf of international lawyers, on behalf to say every time there is a violation of international law, this is a violation of international law, you know. And every time you violate a rule, this rule will be less and less uh, powerful, and then, you know, we will end up with what we have. But it's true, you know, we see different um, reaction to the plight of other people. There's no doubt. And I guess it's just very hard to divorce politics um, from armed conflict, essentially. In the end, there's really no way to separate the two, and they're just what happens in each situation just depends on the dynamics of power of those parties involved. I wanted to ask you about the ICC and the fact that, uh, as you said, this the current Ukraine war involves a superpower. But currently, none of the major superpowers, US, China, nor Russia, none of them are members of the ICC. So when, when these countries at least try to use the ICC to hold other uh, countries accountable, isn't that somewhat disingenuous in a way? And doesn't that point to a real flaw in the system? Well, yes, it's true. There is a problem over there. You know, some people will even call, would even call it a, a hypocrisy. You know, uh, it's it's not only the U.S. and Russia and China. It's also India. Uh, it's also Israel. It's also Turkey. We are talking about it, uh, military powers. Is that very problematic? Yes and no, because at the same time we see, that, for example, that in Afghanistan. American soldiers, you know, when the prosecutor of the ICC opened an investigation in Afghanistan, American soldiers who operated on the ground were part of this uh, investigation. Um, I, I don't, I understand the question, but uh, I'm trying to think and I want to believe that the importance, you know, of the court is not just only these superpowers, you know, the importance of the court comes into the messages it conveys, you know. And what we see here is a flagrant violation of international law from Russia, the territory of an independent state, uh, where actually we have claims that this is not a war. Uh, this is a, what is it? A special military operation, whatever, you know, that civilians have never been targeted, that the whole thing is a propaganda. Uh, so the response, you know, should be an effective and independent investigation, which is going to respond clearly uh, to those claims of propaganda and everything. I don't want to underestimate the whole project. I have been very critical of the ICC myself, uh, but I don't. I think what is at stake is more important, to put it simply. Despite the flaws, there's still value in the system, and it's not, uh, it's not something that we should give up on just because superpowers aren't involved in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thanks for summarizing what I think. My last question is actually along the lines of, you know, for the cynics, if accountability is so hard to achieve, you know, why is it still important to pursue on this path? Yeah, it is important because um, it is important to send a message to make it very clear that when we say never again in 1945 after Nuremberg, after the Holocaust, you know, we failed several times and we said again and again, never again. But that kind of atrocities should not be accepted in 21st century by anyone and against any, no one. So it's not about only the powerful stage, it's against everyone. It is the expressive value of, of the international criminal justice that 
we cannot have impunity for that type of atrocities, for the worst atrocities, as we say, that that shock the consciousness of the international community. So it's a, it's a big message that powerful people and powerful states cannot do whatever they want. Their rules, you know, and there is a common understanding of humanity. It's something we should not underestimate. So even if it's um, a slow process. There is value. Maybe we don't see immediately, but there is value on that. So I haven't, I haven't lost entirely my faith. First of all, in law, in international law, but mainly in, in the humanity of common people, like you and me now that we talk. Maria, thank you very much for speaking with me today and sharing your insights into this issue. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I've been speaking to Dr. Maria Varaki, lecturer in international law at King's College London. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, and after that, it's over to Enterprise, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.